animal welfare needs to become a priority, that welfare needs to originate at the community level, at the neighborhood level to influence policymakers, and that there needs to be a cultural shift. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today, Julian Javor from Pet Rescue Pilots returns to talk about the organization's life-saving work. If you're new to Dog Words, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We Save Each Other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. If you love dogs, you'll love Dog Words. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. Please download, follow, rate, and most importantly, share Dog Words. Celebrate five years of Rosie Fund by supporting our campaign to sponsor 50 dogs. So far in 2021, we've sponsored 30 dogs. Help us reach and surpass our goal. You can donate on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the store on our website, buying a t-shirt at bonfire.com, or buying our note cards and shirts on barkyours.com. Links are in the description. Your donations and purchases help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. Please follow Rosie Fund on social media, subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel that offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and Shelter Dogs, including some exclusive content like the Sweet Casey Pet Project Dog featured in our latest post. Next time on Dog Words, Chloe Shorten joins us from across the Atlantic to talk about an amazing border collie. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Today on Dog Words, we welcome back Julian DeVore, pilot and founder, Pet Rescue Pilots. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to catching up with you. We've actually been talking before I started recording and... That would be a fascinating episode. I should have a paywall yeah, that people would get to listen to that interview and they would be that much smarter for it. Yeah, no, in and of itself, it would have made a good episode. <laughs> if you've not heard our previous interview, it was just over a year ago that we talked to you. We were just a few weeks into two weeks of shelter at home yeah. and you were going to be back up in the air shortly. Once all of that was lifted, and here we are two years later, or not two years, it feels like two years. It's only been a year. We're here 50 plus transports later for us, thousands plus dogs transported for us. Uh, A lot has happened in the last year and a half. Really, how did the lockdown impact you? Because we talked about this last time, but it had only been a few weeks of lockdown. Now it's been over a year of lockdown, what was the impact on you personally and on pet rescue pilots? Well, when we spoke um, a little over a year ago, you know, I was still in the lockdown very much and, and abiding to it. And I was really trying to ensure that by doing our ordinary transport, that we weren't contributing to the proliferation and spread of the virus. But Shortly after our interview, it came to the point where we realized that, all right, this is going to go on for a while. This is not uh, stopping immediately, and we need to find a way to safely work through the pandemic. So we established our own 
kind of transport safety guidelines that were in line with the CDC regulations and suggestions at the time. And we started flying. And I don't think I've ever flown more, actually, than I did during the lockdown months. I would describe what you do as an essential service. I would agree with you. And uh, I've had several conversations with Canadian border officials about that and eventually got them to see that, that it is essential from where we stand for sure. Feel free to give them my number. <laughs> Next time, just tell him to so, call me. I'll straighten yeah, it out. I got a guy in Kansas City. He's got uh, something to tell you. He has thoughts. <laughs> yeah. So you're flying as much, if not more, than ever. Did you notice a difference in the pet population you're transporting or how people were delivering pets to you and collecting pets from you? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest things that that I noticed was actually – Los Angeles City and San Diego City contacting us and saying, do we have any partners that can bring dogs? Because the actual metropolitan areas, and this is where we kind of say it's a tale of two cities here in California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego, their shelters were not by any stretch of the imagination close to full. So we were able to transport to rescues here in Los Angeles and San Diego, which was I mean, it was really effective for the more rural areas that we fly out of West Texas, Southern New Mexico, and the Central Valley, and also for people who were looking to adopt. I mean, in major cities during lockdown, the adoption applications went through the roof. In fact, in Vancouver, for example, we've got partners who have thousands of applications without any dogs to fill them even to this day. Wow. Well, in Kansas City, both adoption went up and foster went up and fostering i strongly believe and evidence supports this helps with adoption it makes an animal more adoptable because it gets socialized and you get information about it that you don't get from it just being in a kennel every day well i mean hugely for them even just getting out of the stressful environment of a shelter where Mm -hmm. there's possibly hundreds of other dogs that are around all with their own temperaments and their own behaviors that they have to deal with. I mean, you know, it's a very high stress environment for these dogs. And um, instead so of having a staff of a dozen or so people marketing a hundred dogs, you have a family marketing that dog. They're posting yeah. videos every day of that dog or that litter of cats showing here's their development. Here they are playing in my yard. And it's easier for an adopter to picture them in their own home when they can see, Oh, here's this dog playing tug of war with this kid. And boy, that would be great to have in our house. For so many reasons, fostering is just one of the most valuable things you can do in the rescue world. It creates space in the shelter where a dog who might have had to have been euthanized for space doesn't have to be. And and of course have to be is a questionable Mm -hmm. statement. None of us necessarily feel that that has to happen, but okay, you know, you're making room in shelters, so that can never be a bad thing. You're helping this dog decompress, show their true personality. You're marketing the dog for adoption. And um, yeah, it's just all around really one of the most selfless things a family can do. Obviously, that's great for the pet. Has your experience showed benefits for the humans as well? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I, I mean, fosters that I speak to, it's interesting because 
one of the most common things that they toil with is do I adopt this dog because they fall in love mm-hmm. inevitably, you know, and, and that companionship is there and they're part of this dog's journey to heal and find love and find themselves. And it's difficult to let go at the end of the foster journey, but a lot of people for them, it's going outside of yourself and helping another living creature. So there are a lot of people who say that as much as I'd love to adopt this dog, I want to be a foster because they know that they're giving to a greater cause than just themselves. I wouldn't say that it gets easier to let go of that dog, the more you foster, the more dogs that you have to let go to their forever home. I would frame it as you get better at it. You get better at recognizing the value that you're providing, the service that you're providing, the good that you're doing for that dog, that family, your community. Exactly. And that, that outweighs that draw to say, oh, wow, you know, I've really fallen for this dog because, I mean, you're going to fall for almost all of them. Let's be honest. Anyone who watches the videos that we do for the dogs we feature, my wife Dawn shoots the video and I'm the uh, talent, I just did air quotes, that gets to talk about the dog. Most of those dogs I've known for five minutes before she starts rolling with the video. Yeah. And that dog is giving me kisses, sitting on my foot, showing me their belly. And it's really hard not to just take that dog home with me then. Yeah. This is the broader strokes piece of information that we glean out of that is that this is what dogs were born to -hmm. to do is to love people. I say this all the time and, and how I really got so impassioned by rescue to the point where I started my own organization rather than just to keep it casual and and fly when I can and out of my own pocket. What really got to me was the fact that I realized that these are no longer just animals. These are domesticated companion animals who for thousands of years have been born for just this purpose of providing companionship for us. The dog needs to be a right fit with the family, but there are so many dogs that any family, any individual is going to find a dog that's the right fit. So just because you fall in love with a dog doesn't mean you have to take that dog. (laughs) Because the ones I fall in love with, I know the biggest reason we don't adopt every single one is we don't have the space and our dog, Peaches, has definite thoughts about how long a stay she will allow with any other dog in the house. So we have to be discriminating on who we would would take. But yeah, that's what they're born to do. And boy, you just look into those eyes and you don't understand how did this dog end up in the shelter? How did you become abandoned or astray or owner surrender? It is just simply put uh, a moral obligation for us to ensure that they're cared for properly. We've evolved together, but humans have had a a lot bigger role in creating the relationship and shaping how a dog can exist. Exactly. So we certainly have a responsibility for taking care of this species that we've created. Yeah, we can't just abandon our creation. I'm glad this isn't the end of the interview because that would be a heavy... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Note to Maybe. go out on. 
<laughs> no, let's right. lighten it up. So you mentioned that you sort of changed your protocols for transport with pet rescue pilots. What were some of the biggest changes or what were some of the surprises that you had to face in adapting? One of the biggest changes was the fact that I no longer had any help loading the aircraft. Actually, that was probably one of the biggest changes. We would have our rescue partners unload the crates Mm -hmm. underneath the wing or in a shaded area, and then they would step away and the pet rescue pilot's crew would come in and we would entirely load the aircraft without any sort of assistance. So it was really twice the work that it was normally and done by fewer people. And not all your dogs are Lhasa Apsos. No, no, they're not. They're not little Shih Tzus or Chihuahuas. Uh, In fact, the majority are not. And we've talked about this before, Phil, but, you know, there's always a need for large dogs to get out to areas like Washington State or Western Canada or Oregon where there's more land and people are more willing to accommodate large dogs. And, you know, in the city centers, that's one of the tough things for large dogs is people don't have the space for them. You know, or an apartment won't accommodate a dog that's more than 50 pounds, for example. So, yeah, we carry at least one or two large dogs whenever we're flying. Obviously, we try to maximize the number of pets that we can fit in the aircraft, and large dogs take up a lot of room, but we try to get them out regularly for that reason. And you don't have one of those trucks with a belt ramp like people see when their luggage is getting loaded in their 737. No, You don't don't even have a scissor lift. It's tight quarters for us. You know, someone's inside breaking their back, moving crates inside the plane. Someone's outside breaking their back, moving these crates in. But I mean, that's part of the job. It's just easier when you have more hands and people can be in closer proximity. A lot of it was really just ensuring that safety was being maintained. You also have to deal with, you know, the rules in the city you live in for mask, distance, what places I can go into and what places I can't. And now you're flying, in some cases, to different countries. You're going to Canada. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in Los Angeles, for example, June 15th, we had our mask mandate lifted. So it became, if you were fully vaccinated, you no longer had to wear a mask. And that's not happening anywhere else that we are going especially not in Canada. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's another big thing, actually. I'm kind of glad we stumbled upon that. Shortly after starting to fly in June of last year, we worked our courage up to approach the Canadian border and see if we could be considered essential transport for moving dogs up to Canada because they are for sure the best resource that American dogs have. They don't have dogs in their shelters up there, and they've got lots of people looking to adopt. So. Canada, we were not able to stay. So it's a five, six hour day for us all in. By the time we get off the ground in Los Angeles, make two stops to pick up dogs and then fly up to Vancouver, Victoria or Calgary. And then, you know, normally we would unload and then be done for the day and take off the next morning after some rest. But it wasn't that simple. We had to get back in time to clear customs at a port of entry in the United States and then take it off. So it's interesting because doing these transports, Each marginal hour after the sixth or seventh hour of sitting in a plane and doing all this concentrating and flying and lifting, and it becomes exponentially more tiring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those days where it was exhausting to do the Canada and return in one day. 
I don't think people have an appreciation who don't have, there's probably going to be a lot of people who are like roofers and miners and stuff who are going to poo-poo my assertion of how taxing mental work can be. But when you have to be mentally focused for more than just a few hours, and I've dealt with that in media production, doing live radio and other things where you've got to be on either as the producer or the host, and you're just wiped at the end, and there are no lives dependent on what I'm doing. So I can't fathom having to be a pilot responsible for your life, your passengers, those animals. The next day, I wouldn't get out of bed. Yeah, there's been certainly some experiences after long-haul Canadian trips where you know, the next day I wake up in Portland or Seattle and have to fly home and it's difficult to get out of bed. But yeah, it's surprising how much the concentration takes out of you. You know, like it's almost second nature in a way because I've got thousands of hours in the aircraft, but you get on the ground and you go and settle into the hotel for the night. And it's like, no, I'm not going to go out and get dinner. Dinner's got to come to me. I am exhausted. (laughs) You don't even realize it. When you're in that moment, you do kind of get on autopilot, whether it's literally in a plane or, or otherwise, it's that decompression afterwards when you've kind of turned off that focus that the body can be aware of how it actually feels. Yeah. By the way, that uh, reminded me that there was another impact of the pandemic as well for our partners. And that's that getting to shelters And being able to pull animals became much more challenging. Everything was by appointment only. We saw a lot of situations in Fresno where the shelter was just simply closed, for example. And dogs that had rescues that were interested in taking them, unfortunately, got euthanized because of the limitations that were in place of, you know, shelter access. That's heartbreaking. We had a situation actually during the pandemic where we were stopping in and This was very difficult. I actually had to take a break before flying home, but we were there to pick up dogs that ended up being euthanized by mistake. Just because the staffing was so low and there were so many communications going through there. and It must have been a miscommunication, but it happened and it's very, very devastating. That would be so hard to deal with. Even with all the good you do, it's hard not to focus on those moments where you are asking yourself, what else could I have done? And sometimes the answer is nothing. It is a reminder that a lot of times in the shelters, these are very timely matters for dogs, you know, especially in high kill areas like the Central Valley of California, Southern and rural New Mexico and Arizona, Western Texas. I mean, in West Texas, dogs don't have hold periods sometimes. You know, owner surrenders can be euthanized immediately. Stray holds are virtually non-existent in some places. Anything we can do to help with that, look at the description for this episode, and I'll link to the interview we had with Brent Tolner. And Brent Tolner was one of the people who helped found KC Pet Project and then went on to now work with Best Friends Animal Society. And they are working to make every shelter in the United States a no-kill shelter. So they've got a long road ahead of them, but they've made progress. So anything you can do to raise awareness for Best Friends Animal Society to let communities know that we're not okay with the solution of euthanization. You know, it is honestly a budget allocation question everywhere. 
it would be very easy, honestly, for state, county, and local governments to completely eliminate euthanasia in shelters. I mean, what happens outside of shelters, that's probably more difficult for them to regulate. But for all the government-run shelters or government-involved shelters, it would be just a simple budget allocation issue because sometimes it's not even a lack of space, it's a lack of staff. You know, during COVID, we saw that shelters actually reduced their capacity numbers on their charter because of the lack of staffing. Mm -hmm. You know, they couldn't have a certain amount of people in the shelter working it. Casey Pet Project was fortunate in that they had a strong foster program to begin with and then enough interested people to expand foster that they could get almost all of the pets out of the shelter when it got to the point where they were no longer allowing volunteers to come in. That's rare. There's not a lot of communities that have that kind of structure in place. And part of it is that it's a private not-for-profit that's running it. And so they need to justify their existence. They need to do a good job of maintaining their no-kill status and taking care of the pets and keeping the donors happy. To be honest with you, I think that uh, you kind of struck on what would make a really good solution globally or at least nationally, which is to have private nonprofits running the government or municipal shelters, you know, because like I said, it's a resource allocation Mm -hmm. question. A lot of times it's just not on the priority for governments, but if you have an animal rescue group that's being given a facility to work with, being given bare minimum funds that are the government allocates normally and is able to also raise funds for the additional care of these animals, it would really change the game. I guess someone could run for mayor or city council on a platform of we'll turn our shelter into a no-kill shelter and we will change animal control to animal welfare, but they're going to lose to the candidate who says we're going to help the schools, we're going to fill the potholes, we're going to bring in a professional sports franchise, we're going to help employers. All those things are important, and uh, unfortunately – the animals kind of get lost in the shuffle. But again, if you privatize it, then the model that Kansas City and some other cities have followed is, so it's a not-for-profit, and they need donations to operate, but they also get some funding from the city, and they're on property that is given to them from the city. So they're accountable to both donors and taxpayers. They really have to keep their eye on the ball. They can't just sit back and go, hey, we've all got jobs and benefits, and as long as we don't rock the boat, we can keep this thing going. No, we have to make sure that we continue to respond to the community needs and take care of animals and that we're not on a local news expose of how the kennels are filthy or anything or how we're treating animals. They have to stay on top of their game. I mean, to be honest, I think we have discussed today what could ultimately solve this problem nationally. While our transport program, you know, Rescue by Relocation is incredibly important and uh, ourselves, Pet Rescue Pilots, as well as our, our fellow colleagues in the sphere that we're all very respectful of one another, Dog is my co-pilot and Wings of Rescue, great organizations that are doing all this movement. But the truth is that the transportation and Rescue by Relocation aspect is a short-term solution Mm -hmm. and by no means is it one that creates 
permanent meaningful change, that change has to come from the communities that are creating the overpopulation, the backyard breeding that goes on, the lack of knowledge and education of how to handle our pets at home to keep them in shelters, like the Keep Them Together program, for example, that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and breeding in general versus adopting all of these things have to start at the community level. You would have no problem then with the service you provide becoming obsolete? I would be thrilled. As a matter of fact, at one point in time, we talked about uh, using the hashtag ground Julian as our campaign for advocating for long-term solutions. And I do still think that that could be something that works uh, the whole ground Julian hashtag at Pet Rescue Pilots, myself and my entire team, like we would love nothing more than to have flying pets be a thing of the past. I mean, truth be told, in the case of natural disaster, like Wings of Rescue does a ton of natural disaster response that will always be necessary. But I would love to not have domestic transport be a need. Yeah, you could find something else to do with your time. I certainly could. Yeah, maybe there's another nonprofit in my future. But That actually does bring me to another kind of current event that I think is worth mentioning. Please. The CDC regulations about other country importation of dogs. I was Um, just looking at this. So that is a big hit to the, the rescue community as there are a lot of rescues that, for example, pull from China or from the Middle East, where, believe it or not, they have a larger overpopulation issue and stray issue than we have here in the States. I know a lot of people who work tirelessly to be bringing dogs in from the meat markets in China and um, the streets in Morocco or Pakistan. And unfortunately, uh, our borders on July 14th will be closing to those pets. When you have people here who are wanting and able to help those dogs, there is a solution but we're going to block dogs from having access to that. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And to give people context, we're listening to this interview as well. You know, the CDC regulation has to do with the increase in rabid dogs that have been imported and the fear that rabies might become a renewed staple in our dog population. It's been a long time since rabies has been. It's almost unheard of now. Yeah, it's almost unheard of. When I was a kid, and I'm older than you, when I was a kid, every other week there was a story in the local paper about somebody in the next town over is having to get rabies shots. And I don't remember the last time I heard about somebody actually getting rabies. Almost gone. Almost eradicated from the, the dog population in the United States. In fact, I would go so far as to say it really was. So, And I don't really know. Well, um, I credit the Michael Scott fun run. Tell me more. <laughs> the episode of The Office where... Oh, Michael Scott God. had the fun run to uh, end God. rabies. That's funny. Yeah, I totally, that, that, I missed that one at first. But it doesn't really strike me as such a big concern as it's being made out to be, which is interesting. You know, there's some speculation about possibly special interest groups pushing for this, be it AKC breeding, etc. But I don't know. I'm not an expert in the field. All I know is that The CDC has banned importation of dogs from, oh, I think over 100 countries in the world, something crazy. As of July 14th, they can't cross our borders anymore. So we've got rescue partners that are 
actually overfilling their facilities right now with dogs, just trying to beat that July 14th deadline. And they've already been talking to us about how quickly can we move these dogs up to areas where there are more families looking for pets so that we can get them adopted quickly. It seems like a very ham-fisted solution if we're trying to stop spread of a dog-borne disease that can be addressed by rabies shots. Let's just get them rabies shots because it's not like transports are showing up at the borders and just turning dogs loose. It's already a very controlled flow of dogs. You know where they're coming in, when they're coming in. You could test them. You could treat them. With attention to not being excessively disrespectful towards our bureaucracy, yes, uh, it looks like there are a number of workarounds that would have been great to keep borders open and just would have held importers to a higher degree of accountability when they're importing dogs. Mm -hmm. In other words, like they're going to get snap tested at the border. They're going to need to provide proof of vaccination and proof of exam within a certain amount of time of arriving. Unfortunately, and we've talked about this before as well, that ultimately this belies on the fact that we aren't prioritizing Mm -hmm. animal welfare the way that we could. Somehow we figure out how to import fruit. Right. (laughs) We have a solution there. Seems like there would be... It's just priorities. It's just the community's demand and priorities. And like you said, you know, no one would get elected running solely on the platform that we're going to end euthanization in our shelters. A story Uh, I frequently repeat on this show is one that the previously referenced Brent Tolner shares. KC Pet Project has an amazing facility for animals in Kansas City. It is truly a shelter, not a pound. And it was designed specifically for animal control. It's not a repurposed building. It's not even a repurposed architectural plan. It was designed from scratch for this purpose. Amazing facility. But way back when people were just playing with the idea of we need a new facility because the one we have is absolutely awful and it absolutely was. It's amazing what Pet Project was able to get done in the facility that they inherited from the previous animal control structure. But Brent Tolner shares that either in one of the meetings or they're leaving one of the meetings, someone on the city council says to him, why do we need a new building anyway? We're just going to euthanize these dogs. I don't think you really understand what we're trying to do. That is very painful to hear. So not really, I think processing the issue is the same thing that's happened with whoever the decision makers are with CDC is, oh, the problem is that there's a spread of rabies. Well, stop bringing in dogs. They're problem solved. Why didn't somebody else think of this? To this point, we've been dealing with a little bit of maintenance that has had us grounded for a bit. And we've talked about the pilot fatigue component of things. We just recruited another pilot at Rescue Pilots. But I think that all of us on the team, in realizing that we were really kind of hitting our stride and transporting a ton, but we realized that perhaps we've overly focused on the short-term solutions. COVID kind of derailed our plans to get started with education and advocacy early on in our organizational lifetime. But this whole time on the ground has kind of yielded us with the realization that they have to go hand in hand. 
Yes. And we've talked about how animal welfare needs to become a priority, that welfare needs to originate at the community level, at the neighborhood level to influence policymakers, and that there needs to be a cultural shift. So I can tell you right now that at Pet Rescue Pilots, we've been working hard behind the scenes on kind of attacking this issue on all three fronts that I've just listed. Mm-hmm. So we're excited to get started. We have a children's book that will be coming out that I'll be excited to share when it does. Definitely circle back when you have that ready to share with our audience because we will absolutely promote it on Dog Words. Thank you. No, I'd love to. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm really excited. It's in the illustration phase right now. And so I think with Pet Rescue Pilots, we're all getting really geared up to start making some meaningful programming that's dedicated towards awareness. Listeners out there who want to help Pet Rescue Pilots, there's a link in the description for this episode. You can go to PetRescuePilots.org and (laughs) find out how you can get involved, how you can donate if you are at either end of pet transport, whether it's sending or receiving, and you think a relationship would be appropriate with Pet Rescue Pilots, go to PetRescuePilots.org. Anything else we need to know going forward with Pet Rescue Pilots now that uh, lockdown hopefully is behind us? Well, we're also trying to stay on the ball here. Lots of dogs have been returning to shelters, unfortunately, as people have gone back to work. It's sad to see, but it's true. We have huge influx into the United States of dogs that are trying to meet this timeline of July 14th as the borders close to outside dogs that are going to require a large-scale domestic transport. And then we're going to really be working this education component as we have been right now, and we're starting to build up our schedule for coming to talk to school groups, younger animal advocacy groups, you know, the next generation of pet guardians who can show up as community leaders and prioritize this for us. One of the things that excites me about Kansas City being the home of KC Pet Project, and there's other cities that have taken steps like this, Austin, for instance, and others, is that you have a generation of pet guardians growing up with the assumption of this is just how you treat animals. Right. And that's what we want is we want the next generation of guardians to just have a completely different paradigm in how they look at Yeah, they move somewhere else in the United States and see a community that is not treating their animals the way they've grown up treating animals. They'll think nothing of taking action. Correct. That's what we want. You know, we want to create influencers of the future as much as I don't necessarily love that word. If we can just, with talking to a school or a class, influence one or two young minds to feel strongly that these animals that were created by us in in terms of their domestication deserve our best, then we've done our job. That is the note we want to go out on. That is the tone we want to set. I always enjoy talking to you, Julian. I can't wait to have you back on again. And it can be for the children's book, or if you want to come back sooner than that, by all means, again, PetRescuePilots.org and all of your social media will be linked in the description so people can follow you. Just as importantly, Julian's point about change starts at the local level. It starts in the community. That's what drives it. You can't just wait for someone at City Hall or the State House to say, we're going to fix this. 
you have to be the change you want to see, to borrow a phrase. So follow Julian's lead and be a force in your community for change, whether it's animal welfare or whatever is important to you. Julian, thank you for joining us and thank you for what you do. Thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Phil, and it's a pleasure to get to do what I do. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to Julian Javor from Pet Rescue Pilots for joining us today. Links to PetRescuePilots.org and all of their social media are in the description. There are also links to the Dog Words episodes we referenced in today's interview. If you find an old episode you like, be sure to share it with your friends. Next time on Dog Words, Chloe Shorten joins us from across the Atlantic to talk about an amazing border collie. A big thank you to alternative string duo The Wires featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Supporting The Wires supports our mission. When choosing the music for each episode of Dog Words, I try to find something from The Wires that fits with the tone of that episode. By no means have I played every song from their catalog. There's much more from The Wires than what you hear on this podcast. Learn more about The Wires at thewires.info and download their music on iTunes. Check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Celebrate five years of Rosie Fund by supporting our campaign to sponsor 50 dogs. With your help, we've already gotten to 30 dogs. You can donate on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the website store, buying a t-shirt at bonfire.com, or putting some of our merch in your cart when you shop at Bark Yours. Links are in the description. Your donations help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. As always, please download, follow, rate, and share Dog Words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Support Rosie Fund by following us on social media, and please subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel. Our latest post features a sweet KC Pet Project dog looking for a forever home. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions at rosiefund.org, and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor or a guest of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening, and remember, we save each other. We save each other.